0: And with that was I long enough? Yeah. <laughs> I will I will introduce Franny S. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: Hi everybody, my name is Franny and I am an alcoholic. And uh I have to explain something before I get started. Have you ever noticed, as you've gone to meetings, that the longer a man is sober, the more interesting his story becomes? (laughs) Have you ever noticed that? Uh, Have you also noticed that the longer a woman is is sober, the more boring her story becomes? (laughs) Because she stops talking about the stuff that made her drag her greasy self in here in the first place? Ladies not only don't do that, they don't talk about it. And uh, so I just have to tell you that my sponsor made me promise that I would not um, clean up my story, that I would just tell my story. And uh, I can't tell all of it uh, in the allocated time, but I can tell most of it so that you can tell that I deserve to get into Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, when I'm working the steps with a newcomer, um Sometimes they read the book, and you know there's still there's still a little question: Am I am I not an alcoholic? And one of the things that I tell them to do is to take chapter one and personalize it. So every place where it says "we," to put "I," and every place where it says uh, "our," to put "my." Make it yours. Make it yours. And uh, and we go through that. And by the time we're finished working together on one, two, and three. Um, they have done that. They have gone through chapters one, two, and three. And they have also written 25 reasons why I should let them into AA. Because it's a really good thing to do with a newcomer because they're real busy convincing you to let them in. They're finally putting down some of the stuff that they did, you know. You don't always get that in the fourth and fifth step. And, um and what it does is it makes it real for them it makes it real um i i don't do anything special i work the steps with people out of the big book of alcoholics anonymous and uh, that's how i sponsor and i've always sponsored people and i'll get to that for sure so anyway i'm going to share in a in a general way what it used to be like what happened and what it's like now and hopefully i'll get out of my drunk log Long enough to get sober and work the steps because I just want to assure you I have done that. But uh, I have a friend that gives me a really bad time because one time I don't know. I uh, whenever I speak, I always say a prayer. Dear God, fill my mouth with worthwhile stuff and nudge me when I've said enough, you know. <laughs> and, and, and I pray for that because I don't want to get ego involved in being up here, you know. Um, come to think of it. This is not a psychological program. <clears throat> well, then how come we tell each other our stories like it was therapy or something? Did anybody ever wonder about that? Well, I know what happens. You want me to tell you? Okay, it's simple. We sit around and entertain each other and God gets us sober. <laughs> you know? i I <laughs> This is where you're going to find the newcomers. We don't go send out sobriety squads to the bars anymore. And trust me, when I got sober, oh, that's right, everybody's good. um My sobriety date is February 7th, 1970, so that makes me 41 years sober. I'm still not sure how I did it. I do know I work the steps, I do know I go to meetings, I do know I sponsor people. I try to practice these principles in all my affairs, and I do try to share what I got with others. so that puts you in a pretty good place well, most of the time so anyway uh i i uh, i don't know where the hell I am I start over or something it doesn't matter. it doesn't matter. um I've already been to another meeting tonight and I, I was listening to the old timers, and I was just thinking how much fun it was. You know, so I just take a deep breath and tell you that uh, I only drank four times before I was 21. I am not one of those baby alcoholics. I first time I drank, I was a kid. I got drunk, and um, I was serving drinks at one of the parties that my father had, and my sister and I went and told him we can carry more. <laughs> And he put more because he thought it was cute, and instead of making a right turn into the living room, we walked straight into the closet at the end of the hall, closed the door, and drank everything on our trays. (laughs) She was five and I was six. Um, The only reason I know about that is because that's one of the funny stories my, my family used to tell about Annie and me when we were kids. The second time I drank, I was 14 years old. And I went out with some of my friends. It was the first time I drank in a bar. And um, I, I drank, and I got drunk, and I came home, and I got lost in my bedroom, and I threw up all over the place because I couldn't find the door, and I couldn't find the light switch. And um, my mother walked in the next day, and that's the first time I ever saw the Alanon face. You know that look?
0: <laughs>
1: no mercy, no mercy. And, uh, she's standing in the doorway looking at me, and I'm sitting on the end of my bed, and I smell, and I'm feeling sick, and, you know, I spent most of the night. You, have you ever done this where you've got one foot on the floor so the bed won't spin out the window? You know, you gotta, you got to keep one foot on the floor so it, it won't spin. Oh, God. And you have to hold on to the pillow. Yeah, well, that's the way I spent that night. And she stood there looking at me. And she turned around and she walked away. And you know what? I, I had no, I didn't know what was going on. And um, when I took my fourth step to my sponsor and I took my fifth step, I told Dottie, my, my sponsor's name is Dottie McCafferty, she died. And uh, But she was my sponsor to the day she died. And um, I told Dottie, I said, you know, I don't even know if this belongs in my fifth step, I, but it's something that happened, and it's something I never understood. So I described the situation to her, and she said, okay. She said, do you understand today what happened? I said, no. I said, I haven't got a clue. She says, Franny, she says, your father was a flaming alcoholic. He was dying of the disease. You're the oldest one of her three kids, and she walks into your room, and you're sitting there looking and smelling just like he does. She says, Your mom knew. She's, lo- she's losing her husband right now, and here's her oldest kid. And the, obviously the oldest kid has the same problem. And she says, I'll tell you something. She said, That is agony. And she says, That agony is inexpressible. There is... There was no way you can explain that kind of pain. There's no way to describe it. I was just sitting there when, when Daddy was telling me that. I was, wow. And I thought, what about amends? I mean, you know, I, I I knew that obviously amends were coming up. And she said, you have to think about that one. And, you know, what I realized right at that time was amends does not mean some half-assed apology where you go in and you say, gee, I'm really sorry I hurt you. I hope I don't do it again. You know, that's not an amends. An amends, the word amend, means to change something, usually permanently. So, yeah, maybe apologies are in order. But when you make the amends, there is something that's going to change that's not going to happen again. And, you know, uh, the purpose for this step is not for us to feel better. It's for us to clean up our side of the street so those people we hurt might feel better. And in in my neck of the woods, when you finish making an amend... You sit down with the person as you've been, and you ask them, is there anything else that I can do that would make you okay? That's a dangerous question. And you really have to be willing to go to some kind of length to make that question, you know, know, someone that you've damaged, and you're sitting there saying, is there anything else I can do? Well, obviously, if they tell you to go hang yourself, you're not going to do that. But I tell you truthfully, I've never had a bad amends. I've made amends, and the people have always been kind. They have always been understanding. They have always been grateful. And they've always been on my side when we were done. So, you know, uh, if there's somebody in here that's sitting on that step, talk to your sponsor about it. Take the eighth step again. And get out there and start making amends. Get to those people that you have hurt, because you never know who's going to carry the message to who. One of my amends turned into a 12 step call. That's the way it goes. Third time I drank, I got drunk and I got pregnant. (laughs) And the fourth time I drank, I got drunk and I got married. So if anybody asked me, you know, hey, Franny, you do some strange things when you get drunk or when you drink, I would have told them, hey, look, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly in the beginning. I'm learning how. Get out of my way. I'm learning how. Because the truth is, I didn't grow up in any area where there wasn't drinking. My father was an alcoholic. My mother, we found out after Daddy died, was an alcoholic. Um, my two sisters and I, are all three of us are alcoholics. My grandparents are alcoholics. All four of my kids are sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And i got to tell you something. The world is a better place because those little bastards are sober.
0: <laughs>
1: you have no idea have no idea i'll i'll try to give it a little bit to you but i i strongly suspect that one day they may be here telling their own stories so and um it's just it's it's just been a powerful experience for me oh and my two oldest grandchildren have already been to aa meetings just to check it out just to just to to see what's going on here you know because they know they're going to get here so, if anybody says to me that it's not, that uh, it's not a genetic thing i i I don't have that evidence. The evidence that I have is that it is genetic i mean it's, I, I'm looking at four generations died in the wool alcoholics every single one of us, you know so who can say i don't argue with people about some of these opinions, but I do know that. My sponsor told me to keep my mouth shut when my kids were going to work their way in here. And I will get to that, because that's part of my story. So anyway, that, that nice guy that I got pregnant with, we moved to California from New York. I'm a Catholic-Irish alcoholic, CIA. And, <laughs> and we uh, got a place out in the San Fernando Valley. This was just when they were opening up all the houses to the Korean veterans and we we got ourselves a three-bedroom two-bath split-level trap just like everybody else and uh, we were out there and i had let's see we we bought a car i had a kid we bought a, uh, the house and then i had another kid i don't know what we got another kid he got on the fire department i don't know by the time i was 26 years old he was on the fire department i had four kids Uh, a mortgage out in in North Hollywood and one car that he used to take and go to work with every morning. And you know, the truth of the matter is, I thought to myself, this can't be what I was educated for. (laughs) This can't be. It's impossible. So I went went to my girlfriend, Shirley Schwartz, and I said, Shirley, is this all there is? And she said, yeah, well, yeah, Franny, what else do you want? And I, I, so I figured, okay, I'll go up... uh, I'll I'll go up to St. Genevieve's on Roscoe Boulevard. I'll talk to the priest up there. So I went to the priest up there. And uh, not that I'm getting hostile by this time, but I said to the priest, Father, if the only thing you want from me is just to breed thousands of little Catholics, why, why do you guys educate women? And he looked at me with these big, Irish blue eyes, and he said, Why, well, darling, so you won't raise ignorant boys? <laughs> Thank you for responding. Because I got to tell you something. I told that story in North Hollywood at a meeting one time, and everybody looked at me and went, So? And your point is? And I thought, I am in alien territory. That's all there is to it. I just, the enemy is out. So, But anyway, so I'm glad you're with me. So those were the four major times. But what happened was, raising those kids and living in that uh, split-level trap with all the other um, housewives, I got bored pretty quick. And we used to have coffee clutches, so instead of a coffee clutch, I used to have... Because I was from New York City, so they thought I was sophisticated. I wasn't sophisticated. I was so naive. I was. I was ridiculous. But they wanted me to have cream sherry with little, cre- little uh, crystal goblets, and these little crackers. You know the social teas, and so I knew how to do that. I had learned that from the nuns, anyway. And <laughs> do you know I went to a convent boarding school? I was raised in a convent. I didn't talk like this until I got into AA. (laughs) I was raised in a convent, I went to a private high school, Mother Cabrini High School, and I went to an all girls college, Hunter College, so, yay! (laughs) Anyway, so here we are, and um, I'm getting, after everybody leaves, after the, the social, I go in and I drink the rest of the wine and eat the rest of the crackers, whatever. And then I lie down on the on the couch and I'm shaking my eyelids for light leaks, you know. And my husband comes home and he takes the kids down to that new place called McDonald's and everybody has a, a nice little hamburger and what have you. And believe it or not, that was the beginning of my drinking. And if I had thought about it at the time, I wouldn't have seen it as anything Um, But I will tell you this, if I'd been honest, which I was not, I would never admit to anybody that I felt better when I was drunk. You improved when I drank. It was like drinking the furniture polish and then rubbing the table. Somebody's got to identify with that one.
0: <laughs>
1: but anyway, that's the way I was living my life. I was so frustrated and so confused. I, I told you I had four little kids, right? Well, you, you can never keep a house in order with four kids. Like somebody said one time later on, a house without fingerprints when you've got four kids is a, is a disaster. So my house pretty much showed that I had four kids, but... After I got them to bed at night, when I could start drinking, I would start drinking and I would clean up the house and I would get the dishes washed and and, and, and make everything look like a a a cover of a magazine or something and get it all nice and then I would open the curtains in the front of the house just enough so that if somebody walked by, they could look in and see how nice it was. There was only one problem. I lived on a cul-de-sac.
0: <laughs>
1: Nobody ever walked by. <laughs> but I was in here. I was in here in self-defense. My sanity was, I didn't like you. you, you I, I didn't trust anybody. I used to tell my sisters that I was an alien, that I was born in another planet, and that they just found me by mistake, but that I'm waiting for my ticket, and I'm going to go to the right family. And, and these poor little kids believed me. And um, it, was, it was, in a way, it was very, very funny, and in a way, it was very, very painful, you know, <clears throat> which that's why we get together, because we learn to laugh at what used to make us cry. You know, we learn to share what we went through The wounds, the bruises, whatever, with other people who can say, Oh God, yeah, I've been there. You know, we don't find it outside on the street. We find it in these rooms. We find that identification. We find that love, that compassion, that basic goodness that we can see in each other's eyes. We find that in these rooms, and we need to come here. And I got to tell you, any of you newcomers here, or you middle people, whatever, Just because you get well doesn't mean that that you can't benefit from coming to AA. I know too many people that got well enough that they went out and at some point in their lives either they forgot what they learned or I don't know what it was, but they drank again when push came to shove. So I'm 41 years sober. I'm still going to these damn meetings. And I'll tell you something else. It doesn't get any better, baby. This is it. This is it. This is... You're, gonna, you're sitting there in agony and you're saying, well, gee, maybe next week will be better. No, man. It's going to be the same damn meeting, the same people, the same faces, the same stories. And you're going to learn to love those people. Somebody said to me one time, how, when, when, how often, when, how long do I have to come to these meetings? I mean, it was just like that. And I said, until you want to. And that's logical enough that, you know, newcomers make noise because they want to. They they don't have any real questions. (laughs) You know, they're just... Uh, It's going to be like that, huh? Okay, let me tell you. So here we are. I'm drinking more and more. My husband is wondering, who the hell is this? He came to me one time, and he was folding and unfolding a kitchen towel. Now, my ex-husband is a Los Angeles fireman, and those guys don't raise any wimps. And I could make that man cry. He used to get so frustrated with me. And one time he was folding and unfolding a kitchen towel. And I walked up to him and I looked at him and he's folding and unfolding this towel. And the tears are running out of his eyes down his face. And I said, what's wrong with you? And he said, who the hell are you? Where's my wife? Where's the girl I married? Where's the lady that I want to live with and and have my kids with? And where's the woman I want to grow old with? Because I don't know who you are. You're some kind of a devil and you've stepped in here and you may look like her, but you're not the person I married. I want you to get the hell out of my life and give me my wife back. And as an alcoholic, we all know, you don't know what to say. And the only thing you can do is wait until he runs down so you can go get another drink. Because it isn't that I ever intended to hurt the people I hurt when I was drinking. But they just got in the way. Anybody that got between me and my drink, I had a problem with. No, they had a problem with me. Yeah, that's more truthful. So anyway, we moved down to the beach and I was walking around, the, we lived in Redondo Beach then and I was going down the beach with the kids and everything seemed so much freer than being out there in the valley and there were these people down there on the beach and my God, they were fascinating. The guys had these bell-bottom, hip-hugger, corduroy pants with these big belts and, and they were wearing vests and they didn't have any shirts and their hair was much longer than mine. And the girls, they looked like Russian peasants or something, you know, with these get-ups. And the, they had flowers and feathers in their hair, you know, and they're running around singing, dawning of the age of Aquarius, you know, and they're, and they're, and they're, all in, and they're smoking these weird cigarettes and they're drinking this wine out of big bottles, but they covered them with bags. And I guess that was supposed to make the police think it was soda. I don't know. <laughs> but that's what I went. I walked up to them, coming from the environment that I came from. I formally introduced myself to them. I told them what my name was, and I told them I live right up the street, and those, the, that's my kids. And, my God, you got, who are you? You know, and so they started talking to me, and I started going down the beach and hanging around with these people, you know, and... And, God, I learned a whole new vocabulary. And, and we, didn't, we didn't talk about what school your kids went to. And we didn't talk about what company your husband worked for. And we didn't talk about what church you went to. None of that middle-class stuff, you know, man. We talked about the verities of life and why there were stars, you know. Yeah, you know. Right? Drinking. So one day I'm home and my husband comes to me and he says, Franny, I don't know what the heck's the matter here, but I don't know who those people are, but I don't want them coming over to this house anymore. He said, they're not your friends. They're just taking advantage of you. They, want, they come here because you live close to the beach and when it rains, they got a place to hang out and you've got money. So they know they can hit you up for a couple of bucks. He says, those are not your friends. Those are parasites. But you see, I had learned this new, wonderful vocabulary. And so after he ran down, I looked at him and I said, Hi, don't go getting heavy on me, okay?
0: <laughs>
1: and he, uh, he did the thing my mother did. He threw his hands up in the air and he walked away. So I continued being footloose and fancy-free down there on the beach, And uh, that summer, my oldest son was going to celebrate his eighth birthday, and um, what happened was uh, I went down the beach. I was supposed to be there at, at home putting the birthday together, and instead I went down the beach with the kids, and I was sitting in Tony's on the pier drinking, and my husband came down a couple of hours after he went to work, and he came home. He was looking for a birthday party, and the house was empty and he knew where we were so he came down to the beach and he pulled me off that bar chair and he punched me all the way up the he steered me he punched me on this side and I would go that way you know and be walking behind me steering me up the the pier and here's the kid standing down there on the end of the pier and waiting to see what daddy and mommy are going to do now and just i had a little hunch that i didn't like it so i reached in my pocket and i pulled out some money And I gave it to my daughter, Annie, who was nine, but he was eight, and uh, Michael and David were there. And I said, look, buy some ice cream and walk home, because we were only two and a half blocks from the beach. You just walk on home, and we'll pick up a birthday cake, and we'll have a birthday party. So my husband and I got home, and he's still just fit to be tied. And there was a phone call, and I picked it up, and my daughter is saying, Mom, come down here quick. We don't know exactly what happened, but Buddy was sitting on the railing of the pier eating his ice cream, and we think he fell or he got pushed or something, but he went over into the water, and we can't find him. And I, uh, I handed my husband the phone, and she told him what had happened, and I, I, he shattered right there in front of me. I took him. I know what it's like to get shocked into ice-cold sobriety. I took him, I put him in the car, I drove us back down to the beach, and I started running down that beach into the water, and this big, fat Samoan friend of mine that I used to swim with grabbed me, and he flipped me around, and he pushed me down in the sand. He said, my God, Franny, don't you find him. And he held me there, kneeling in the sand, watching the water, until one of my friends came walking out of the water carrying my birthday kit. So then we were up at the hospital, and i got to tell you something. Human beings touch each other when there's any kind of real tragedy. You know, we put our arms around each other. We hold each other. We console each other. My husband was standing on that wall in the hall outside the emergency room. And he's got his arms folded and I'm standing on the wall opposite, staring at him with my arms folded. And the doctor came out and he said, I'm sorry, he's gone. And the two of us just turned around and we started walking out of that hospital without even touching each other. That's what my drinking had done to that family. That's That was my gift to that family. And I, I just went quietly crazy. I didn't cry. See, because I had started running around with the bad boys. I wasn't running around with the hippies anymore, you know. I was running around with the bad boys that supplied them with the dope. And uh, these were the guys that carried knives and guns. And you never admitted any weakness. Because if you admitted any kind of a weakness, they would just cut your throat and take your money and run. It's, that's the kind of life. See, I was running with the bottom feeders. So I was just crazy. I, I just snapped. I, ne- I never said a thing. I never cried. And my husband came to me about a month, two months later, I don't know exactly, and he said to me, Franny, he said, I'll tell you what I did. I've talked to the teachers, I've talked to the psychiatrists I've taken you to, I've talked to the psychologists, I've talked to the family counselors. That man spent an awful lot of money trying to fix me. We had gone through every psychological program there was, he said, I've spoken to all of those people and they all told me the same thing. So I'm divorcing you and I'm taking the kids away from you before you murder another one of my children. Uh, you know, I, I said, that seems like a good idea. And then I got to thinking about it and I realized, yeah, I'm pretty casual with these kids. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the best mother in the world, but I do love them. And I know they love me. And I really believed that they would be better off with me, but I didn't know if I could really, I didn't care. I decided that I was going to do everything I could to get the kids, get the custody of the kids. So I went and I found a lawyer who smelled like a newcomer. I hired him, I seduced him, and I blackmailed him into providing false witness in a court of law that said, well, she's not much of a wife, but she really is a good mother. And I got the custody of those kids. And I thought I was so hip, slick, and cool. I had the custody of these kids, right? (sighs) Well, you never know what the real reason is. Later on, uh, I changed my mind about that hip, slick, and cool business. The reason the kids were with me, because they had to see their mother hit her bottom so that she found Alcoholics Anonymous, because when it was their turn, then they would know where to go. That's the reason I got those kids. But anyway, here I had them, and now I had to find a, a job appropriate to my intelligence and my education. So I looked around for a week, and I found a job in a beer hall as a barmaid, in a, and it was wonderful. I was the daytime manager because I was the only one in there. That's I promoted myself.
0: And,
1: and I... uh and I'm wiping the bar down one day, and this guy come, you know, comes slithering in. He was uh, half Cherokee from um, Anadarko, Oklahoma, and he shot pool the way I did. He played the kind of music I liked. He danced with me all the time. He was a liar, cheat, and a thief, just like I was. And this paragon. Stole a credit card or two and came to me and said, Hey, let's go get married. Now look, when you get an offer like that, what can you do? You know, just... So I went to Las Vegas with him and we got married. And then we came back and we proceeded to have another kid. And when that kid was six months old, that man is standing there looking at me with these big black eyes and saying to me, I can't take your game. I'm gone. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. You know, this is the partner I had carefully chosen. <laughs> well, as well as I could, and I don't want to lose him. I got I got, I'm that much further, you know, I didn't say it in these words, but I was that much further into the disease. I had another kid I didn't want to have to go back to. I didn't want any of that. So he walked away, and what I did, I went in and I called up the operator, and I said, see, I remember my mother called AA on my father, but my father always got away just before they got there, (laughs) but I remembered that, so I called the operator, I couldn't see the dial because I was drunk, and uh, I I told the operator, I said, hey, give me Alcoholics Anonymous, and she gave me the Manhattan Beach Alano Club, and you know how newcomers hang around trying to help, you know? Well, some newcomer, when when she she dialed it for me, and I I said, uh, This guy said, Hello, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, Hi, give me the boss. (laughs) And he said, This is what I heard Hey, there's a lady here, she wants to talk to the boss. Give me that phone. No, no, you'll give it to me. No, I've got it. Finally, this guy gets on. He says, my name's Dave, and I'm an alcoholic, and our higher power is not available for you at this moment. <laughs> but I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm authorized to discuss the <laughs> the disability and the recovery. I figured he sounds like a vice president. That's okay. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time talking to him, and I stayed on the phone with him, and you know, he quickly realized that, yeah, we were talking to that guy, about that guy out there, but he had an active of I was drunk when I was on the phone with him. He was pretty quick to deduce that. And, and he was so sweet. Do you know he offered to send a car for me? I hadn't had a car pick me up in a long time. And I, I really liked him. And, you know, I dearly loved my husband, but a girl's got to look out for herself. <laughs> and I figured maybe this is plan B, <laughs> you know. And uh, So anyway, I said, no, I don't want you to pick me up. I don't want you to send. I'll get myself there, because I was afraid I'd be bored. And you see, the truth of the matter is, you can abuse me. You can fight with me. You can, you can do anything you want. Don't bore me. So I, uh, I I'll take myself up there, thank you. And I put my last quarter. I think this spoke something for my intention. I had 25 cents, and I can tell you that in 1967, gasoline cost 25 cents a gallon. And I bought a gallon of gas and put it in that big old beater that I was driving, with that last quarter, and I drove up to that meeting. And I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I want to tell you how I got ready for it. I put on my 79 cent Zoris from Zodi's. <laughs> I put on a uh, camel colored hip huggers bell bottom corduroy. I found out in my backyard after a party, but they fit me, and that made them mine. <laughs> I had a man's shirt that I had bought from Goodwill for a dime. There was a button missing, but I had it pinned carefully. I had a camel-colored sweater that I'd stolen from from Goodwill because I couldn't afford to buy it. I had a broken nose and two black eyes from the heated argument the night before. And this was in 1967, and the afro didn't really come in until 75, but I have that kind of hair, and I had an afro in 67. And I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous wondering if you were going to live up to my expectations. <laughs> yeah. And they, this guy saw me coming, and I, I don't know how he knew who I was, but he saw me, and he went like that, and he pointed to the chair right there, and I sat down, and, and he started talking. His name was Frank Priest, and he's dead now, so I can give his last name. But that man talked about some stuff that made my face hurt from laughing so much. I, I don't know when I stopped laughing, but I do know that first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, you had me laughing so hard. My sides hurt, my face hurt right here, my jaw. I mean, it was just like, what the heck is going on? And see, I was always very careful whether I laughed or cried at any one time because I was such a phony. I was always a phony. I always looked to you for anybody else, for my cues. So I never cried until I saw somebody cry. And I never laughed until I saw somebody laugh because my timing was off. But what I found out was in the halls of Alcoholics Anonymous, you guys all laughed the same time I did. And I said to myself, these people are sick. (laughs) I knew. So, and anyway, he talks for about a half an hour and God, we just enjoyed it. And then he says, okay, he says, now it's questions and answers. Because what I didn't realize, they had snookered me into the newcomer meeting on Friday at 7 o'clock. So, uh, and I knew if he was going to bring up questions and answers, he had to have a shill in the crowd. And I had to get, so I raised my hand real quick and I said, hey, hey, um, how do I get my old man to stop beating me? And he looked at me and he said, I haven't had anybody's old man beat me since I got sober, which tells you something about his program. And he says, but I want Indian Genie to get up here and to, tell, to share her experience strength with this lady. So Indi- Indian Jeannie got up and she said, my name's Jeannie, I'm an alcoholic. And any son of a bitch that lays a hand on me, now that I'm sober, is going to get a knife right in the gut. And I said, hot dog, these people have the answers. <laughs> I was thrilled. So I stayed for that meeting, and I stayed for the 8.30 meeting, and I stayed for the mis- the, the midnight wrist slasher's meeting, you know. And, and boy, I got myself home, and I, when I got home, I polished up the biggest knife that I had, and I, pu- I put it right there so that when he came home, I could introduce him, Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And he came home, and I had that man in the corner with the knife right here. And I'm going, and I'm a child of God, and I'm mean, and I pulled the knife back to get a reaction, and he split. So I figured, good. I went to every meeting I could go to that weekend. I went to every meeting I could go to the next week. And, you know, somebody came over to me and said, please don't ever do this to a newcomer said, honey, why don't you find the people that you really identify with? Oh. Hey, anybody I identified with was in deep trouble. But I went and I found my people, and we were the ones that stood outside the club, dragged our fingers, kicked our heels, and,
0: yeah, this is heavy
1: meeting. Yeah, real heavy, yeah. <laughs> and While well, everybody else is going in and out. So what I did was... um I turned into a good bad example. I turned into the one that came to meetings for three years drunk. See, the problem was I couldn't tell you who I was. I couldn't tell you I'm the lady that killed my kid. I couldn't tell you what I had done. I couldn't tell you that I was the animal that hid under the pier with a stick, keeping the the rats away from me because there were two-legged rats up up on the pier looking from my ass one more time because I'd stolen somebody's something and eaten it, snorted it, sold it, lost it. Whatever the hell you do with other people's stuff, you know, because that's, that's what I was. So I couldn't tell you who I was, and because I wouldn't tell you who I was, you were willing to take me for lunch, and you told me your story, and I listened carefully, but I would never tell you mine. And I stayed drunk. I went to meetings faithfully drunk for three years. And at the Young People's Meeting on a Sunday night one time, there was this lady standing there by herself, and I hated her. I hated her with such a passion, you can't believe it. And I went up to her, and I said, Dottie, I want to talk to you. And she looked at me, you know, and she knew who I was, and she says, yeah, Franny, what's up? And I was going to tell her what I really thought of her, and what I said was, would you please be my sponsor? And I don't know where that came from. It was some kind of God shot, that's all I can tell you. But she looks at me and she says, Oh God, Granny. She says, I don't know, you're such a loser. <laughs> uh, and I did the thing that saved my life. I said, Please. She said, Well, she put her hand out. And uh, one of her lieutenants gave her a directory, and she... You got those kind of dragon ladies here, right? Okay. So she started marking, she started marking, and she gave it to me. She said, these are the meetings I go to, I'll see you there. I had a sponsor. I didn't know what to do with her, so I stayed away from her until I figured it out. But I had no idea. And you know what happened? I... One day she called me up, and she said, um, in the morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, and I picked up, <clears throat> picked up the phone, and I said, yes, hello. She said, Franny, she said, are you still taking speed? I don't know how she knew that, you know. <laughs> I don't know. And I said, uh, <clears throat> no. And she said, good. She said, when did you stop? And I went, <clears throat> this morning. <laughs> and so she said, okay, come on over to my house. Start hanging around. We'll start watching people that are doing sobriety so that you can see what to do. So I started hanging around with those people. And you know what? I had inadvertently joined in with a den of step Nazis. They didn't want anything from me. I couldn't entertain them with my funny stories. I couldn't do anything. The only thing they wanted to know is what meeting did you go to last night? What step are you on today? You know? And I only wanted them to ask me to go to the movies on Friday night. So I started working the steps. And Dottie taught me how to be a human being. And she told me that she couldn't stand me. That was the reason she got me into the steps so fast, because she just couldn't stand me. And she was hoping there would be an an effective personality change, as promised in the book, so that she could tolerate me. And it, it seems to have happened. And when I was nine months sober, this Indian girl named Becky came up to me and she said, Franny, will you be my sponsor? And I said, oh, my God. I said, Becky, just, just stay there. Just, just sit, sit right there. And I ran over to my sponsor, and I said, Dottie, what am I going to do? Becky just asked me to be her sponsor, and Dottie said, Franny, you stay one step ahead of her. She'll never know the difference. <laughs> and so that's what I did. And three, three years later, Becky married a guy that was in the Army and took Alcoholics Anonymous to Germany. So you never know who's going to carry it, you know. And um, I kept, I kept I stayed sober. I've been married twice on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. There are some fools in here that were willing to marry me. But the thing that happened was, I did go to my sponsor in the beginning. And I said, Daddy, Janet's got a boyfriend. Susie's got a boyfriend. The other lady, I can't remember her name, has got a boyfriend. Where's mine? And she... She said, Franny, any guy that's interested in you at this stage of your life isn't worth your time. <laughs> and thought, so okay, you know, and I've had I've had occasion I've had occasion to tell that to women that I sponsor. Honey, be grateful for the time. You're not here to find a man. You're here to find a higher power. You know, you go looking over at the men's meeting for a higher power, you're only going to find a guy who's trying to take a hostage. You know, leave it alone. Because I felt just so sorry for the men because these guys would pick up these little cuties and they think that they're taking home a a goldfish and they get up the next morning and it's a barracuda, you know? And You know, so... Trust me, I have sponsored enough people I know. You know, and what's happened was I did work through the steps, and I did practice these principles, and I was such a lame cookie. I couldn't go to work. I was unemployed. I was unemployable, so they sent me back to school. And we found out I'm a good student. And I wound up getting a degree in psychology and a degree in sociology and a degree in theater, and then I went back. I went to my husband one time, and I said, Carter, you know, I I really want to work in the theater. That's really what I want to do. And he said, well, whose permission are you waiting for? So if you have a dream, I'm asking you that. Whose permission are you waiting for anyway? And when I realized that I was in my own way, I went back and I got my master's in fine arts and theater, you know? So I've been a teacher, and what happened was I got to teach kids that were at risk in Compton. I was the... One of the two white teachers at Compton High School. And I thought, I thought I was bringing something good to these kids. But I want to tell you something. They taught me a lot about respect. And they taught me a lot about loyalty. And they taught me a lot about a lot of things. I had some really good, smart kids in my class. And all they needed was a chance. But I never got any respect on the schoolyard. When you walk through the schoolyard, you know, you're going from one class to another sometimes. And what happens is these kids will stand in your way and, they, you know, they'll challenge you. And uh, so you try to keep an eye ahead because you don't want to get up to this big lunk and then have to <laughs> move around them to continue. So and that always burned me, but I didn't pay any attention to it. And then one day I'm walking across the schoolyard and, my God, They're parting in front of me like Moses parting the Red Sea, you know. And I'm looking and I'm saying, wow, finally, some respect, you know, I love it. And I got over to the theater and I unlocked the door and I really have to kick it to get it open. And I turned around and here's two of my biggest mahoos right behind me. So, you know, I got to tell you, you do learn a lot when you stay sober. And, and. uh You know, life is fun, and we're here, and we're going to have a party. And thanks for coming to my party. You realize it's all about me. (laughs) I will share my cake with you. I will give you a soda or two. You know, I will give you a hug or two as I see you in the halls. But it's my party, mine, and I'm sharing it with you. And each one of you, I hope you realize that this is your party, and you're sharing it with everybody else. You know, because we are it and we go through life. We keep going to meetings. We got a sponsor and she's holding on to us on this side. We got all those idiot newcomers hanging on to us on this side, sponsees. And you go through life like this, you can't fall down. Thank you.